This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. According to the CDC, vaccinated teachers and students don't need to wear a mask inside school buildings. But only one-third of kids between 12 and 17 have gotten a COVID vaccine, and as the Delta variant continues to spread. California quickly decided against putting those new guidelines in place, while some states, including Illinois, plan on following it. So what's the best practice here? And what are the ethical guidelines we should be thinking about when we try to balance getting kids back in classrooms with keeping them safe? Lori Zoloth is the Margaret E. Burton Professor of Religion and Ethics at the University of Chicago. She's also the Senior Advisor to the Provost for Programs on Social Ethics. Professor Zoloth, welcome back to Reset. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking. So Illinois is adopting the new CDC guidance, as I mentioned. Uh, Chicago Public Schools says it's still reviewing it. What are your thoughts, Professor, on this new guidance? Well, I'm a Californian by birth, so I was sort of attracted to the loss, to the way that California is reacting to this, having grown up in the L.A. public school system. Okay. Um, I think an abundance of caution has served us well during the epidemic, and I think it's very hard to convince some kids to wear masks and some kids when some kids aren't wearing masks. I think a universal mask on mandate is the, really the way to go because I think it's too it's too stigmatizing and isolating for kids who can't get vaccinated because of health conditions or other reasons to have to wear masks when their peers are not wearing masks. So I think it's just bad policy to set up a half and half thing. And so I think everyone wearing a mask until we know much more about this new Delta variant and about whether we need booster shots, all the uncertainties of it that surround us right at this moment um, really mandate a much more cautious approach. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I'm willing to wait and see how, how it's being reviewed by science. Right, right. Well, the CDC's decision leaves a lot up to local officials, right? So do you think that more specific guidelines then would have been more helpful? As you said, you you wanted more of a universal, everyone's got to wear their mask in the classroom. Exactly. But I'm I'm thinking of this in terms of ethical norms and and ways we treat one another and how we care for one another. And that would mandate universal policies, ones that don't distinguish between people who can be vaccinated and people who can't yet get vaccinated. And there's always going to be a proportion of people in our society that will not be able to get vaccinated. They have other conditions, they're getting cancer treatment, they have an autoimmune condition, and that will leave them vulnerable until everybody else is either wearing a mask or vaccinated. So that's why I like universal policies, because it doesn't single people out, it doesn't discriminate against them. Um, The CDC, I think, is in a process of change. They are very sensitive to all all the new data that's coming in. You see this around the booster shot, yes or no. The FDA is reviewing that today. There's a lot of uncertainty about this virus. We we don't know a lot about it. And so we, the CDC is trying to go with the best scientific evidence now. Professor, let's turn to the phones. We've got Joanna on the line. She's calling from Evanston. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to Reset. I'm actually a public health ethics professor locally. What I'm concerned about is events where I'm being told that everyone is vaccinated. I actually attended one last night 
my vaccine status was not confirmed. I knew people in there that were lying. So my question is, like, ethically hosting, opening up things to say to people, we know everyone's vaccinated. Like, that feels unethical if it's an honor system. I wonder if you could speak to that. It's really troubling to think about an honor system being the ethical way to go, because we know that only 47% of Americans are fully vaccinated, and that's true in Illinois as well. So it sets up an opportunity for people to lie. It, it, it creates a temptation for people to act badly. And you want to avoid situations where you're tempting people in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why universal mandates, again, once again, are much more protective of everyone. It is very hard to establish people's vaccine status. It's a funny combination of people not wanting to be rude, people wanting not to be left out, um, uncertainty about the vaccine, and some genuine hesitancy. And then some people who, can't, like I said before, can't get vaccinated. So that's why there has to be a system where there's rigorous enforcement of vaccine status. If that's, in fact, how you're going to do it, then you have to really do it. You can't say you're going to do it and then assume that people are just going to go on the honor system. Right. Uh, tragically, that hasn't worked very well. Well, here's another stat. A recent survey shows that only 52% of Americans have a great deal of trust in the CDC. That figure dropped to 37% when it came to other federal health agencies like the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Drug Administration. Uh, What do you make of that, Professor? It's very interesting because it's not just public health agencies, which we used to have a very high degree of trust in, NIH and, and CDC, certainly the, were the gold standard for, for how um, disease was treated and how we were protected. It's all federal agencies. It's a deep distrust of the state that's really quite disturbing when you're trying to think about living in a collective society where we depend on one another and upon people with specific expertise to keep us safe. What's interesting to me is it's not um, only that people don't trust these agencies across the board. Mm-hmm is that they think they know just as much as their agencies. They, they feel themselves to be experts in epidemiology or in immunology. That's really quite fascinating. Oftentimes when you're talking to someone, they'll look at you and say, well, I've read the literature. I think this and put forward their opinion as equally valid. So it's not only a destabilization of our society where we, people don't trust one another. They're not trusting people who they formally turn to as having more training or expertise or education than themselves. State and local public health agencies, according to that same poll, they also have a similar level of trust from the public. What's the role then of public health agencies at a time like this? I saw that statistic too. Something like 44 and 41 percent of people trust them. It wasn't. You would think that even if you didn't trust your federal government, you might trust your local politician or your local state health authority or your local city health authority. I know that's how usually it works. It is very disturbing that people are turning away from from established regimes of expertise and from authorities that we we need to depend on. You can't know everything in a complicated modern system. This is a modern world in which we don't know how half the things that make our lives better really work. Like, yeah, I don't, we don't really know immunology and epidemiology. Come on, you know, I, t- I teach ethics. Right. If I can say that, then of course, no journalist knows it either. So we have to depend on someone who, who teaches public health to tell us the rules about public health and who teaches immunology to teach us about um, how immunology works or how vaccines should work for us. And if we fail to do that, then we're putting forward a kind of tragic naivete in the place of what, what is available to us. And that is no, that's no way to run a country. That's no way to run a city or a human society. So, so what kind of changes would you suggest then to boost public trust? Well, I actually think that admitting our deep level of uncertainty would be a really good move at this point, rather than saying 
we're sure that these vaccines were whole. We're 100% sure of what of our, our knowledge base at this point. We're saying quite honestly, this is a new viral illness. We have a lot of uncertainty. The science is still unfolding. We're going to do the best we can to follow the science and tell you as soon as we know, we'll tell you what we know. And as soon as it's available, we'll tell you about it. And if we don't know, we'll tell you that too. Public health officials who say that, those are people that one, one turns to in a, in a more trusting way because you, you don't want to be fooled. You don't want to feel like someone's holding out on you. So always making an effort to tell the truth, even if you think it's scary or if it will panic people, to, to really trust that people, if given the right information, will make the right decisions is the way to begin. And then secondly, of course, to depoliticize these activities. Without a, a trust in, a, in one another, without a trust of one's neighbor, without a trust of one's community and one's state, mm -hmm. um, we're never going to be able to have agreement around not only this pandemic, but future pandemics, and of course, the disaster that's upon us with climate change, which is going to require a lot of trust in scientists and a lot of trust in governments yeah. and a lot of trust in, in, in collective action. That's so important. Uh, let's hear now from Julia. She's calling us from The Loop. Hi, Julia. What's your question? Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. I love the show. Thank um, you. My question is based around workplace health etiquette. My employer um, implemented really strict guidelines during COVID where it, if you have even a small symptom like a sore throat or, um, you know, a, a sneeze that you just absolutely were not allowed to be um, in the workplace. And as things have changed and vaccinations have come back, I feel like we're getting away from that. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on these health protocols in terms of, you know, sore throat, a little bit of a cough, even for those that are vaccinated? I would like it to stay strict because I, I would, I enjoyed not having the common cold all year long as well as not COVID. Um, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I hope that we, we understand how respiratory diseases are so easily spread and communicated. I'm appalled by how many people get sick and then die every year from the flu when clearly it's completely avoidable, right? And I'm like everybody else. I went to, sc I went to school and taught and, and did it with a cold. And if I had a, a, a headache or a sore throat or had sniffles, I sort of soldiered on in, in some sort of misguided attempt at, at courageous action. I mean, I thought that was the right thing to do, to show up for work even if you didn't feel well. That was just wrong. And we've, we know that now. And I, and I like policies that say, no, don't endanger anyone, even, even to share a cold. You don't want to do that. You shouldn't be in public if you have any symptom whatsoever. Now, if you have chronic allergies or something, then you need to test. And then if you get tested and you don't have, you don't have a, um, an infectious disease, then okay, you have allergies, take, and, you know, take some medication for it. But this whole phenomenon that you should medicate yourself into a false appearance or performance of health when you're really not healthy I think was really misguided, and we have to we have to stop doing that. That was a, a bad plan, kind of mm -hmm. like not washing your hands. We have, to, we have to change. Some something fundamental has to change about about how we care for one another, and how our bodies can really be understood as potentially harmful to others unless we care for them with very carefully and thoughtfully. So I hope that employers remember this. And and part of the problem is that there's not a robust trade union movement that insists on health on, on sick days and payment for sick days. So people are tempted to come in. Again, when I said before, you, you don't want to set up a situation where people are tempted to do the wrong thing. You want to set up a situation in which all the incentives are to do good things and to act morally. Professor, you mentioned this briefly early on. That's the booster shot. I want to get back to that because it, it's worth talking about here. Pfizer announced it's working on a booster shot that's intended to target this Delta variant. 
but the FDA and the CDC released a joint statement saying fully vaccinated people don't need a booster shot at this time. How do we interpret all of this information? Well, even as we speak, the FDA is meeting again with Pfizer, and they're going to display their data that shows why they think that. Right. So that data has to be evaluated. If they're saying, wait, wait a minute, we, we, we're going to need booster shots. Is that based on the immunity of people in their first part, the first phases of their trials being weakened? Like they know that they have access to the ongoing data to the people in the phase three clinical trial, all of whom began to get the intervention about a year ago. Are they still robustly protected or has that begun to fade? And if that's begun to fade, you can see they have long thought they might need a booster. We get boosters on a lot of on a lot of um, vaccinations. Very few, in fact, protect us completely with one shot. This is a very elusive and dangerous virus. Even getting it doesn't protect you. Like if you get yellow fever, for instance, then you're not going to ever get yellow fever again, right? You, it's a terrible way to way to protect yourself against yellow fever. But that's why the vaccination is so effective. Diseases with one shot of the disease. Um, protects you for the rest of your life, then can be used to to create very effective vaccinations. But COVID, clearly, you can get reinfected even if you had the actual disease. So the vaccination uses the same pathways, and of course, is subject to the same the same frailties. Right. So that's why boosters are important. It's important to know if, if they're needed, what kind are needed. Is the Delta variant the last one we need to worry about? Or it's a very scary variant, to be sure. Um, but is there another one, you know, down the Greek alphabet that, that will be worse? Right. It's surprising because usually viruses attenuate. They get less virulent as they adapt to a population. But because there's so many billions of people on Earth, none of whom have any resistance to this disease, and we've contained it so poorly, and, and our social norms have not allowed us to really do lockdowns effectively. It's meant that the virus has had a wide range of a population to, to explore and to exploit. And that's why the variants are, are coming so quickly and, and seem to be getting worse as, as time goes on. Let's hear so you'll have, we'll, have to, we'll have to know, like, do we, how protected are we against the Delta variant? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that protection long-lasting? Is it robust enough? And um, what would it mean? What's the social cost of, of having to re-immunize people every year, like we do with flu? Right. Let's hear now from Ryan in Bolingbrook. Ryan wants to talk a bit more about trust in vaccines. Hey, Ryan, welcome to Reset. Hey, thank you so much for having me and giving me the platform to talk. Um, sure. So, yeah, a little bit about me. I'm a pharmacist by trade, so uh, I've been giving COVID shots, and a lot of people are hesitant to, hesitant to getting them. And I just wanted to kind of shine light on, you know, a lot of people blame, like, how quickly it came out. But if you think about it, this is what happens when, as a society, we come together and we put in tons of money and a lot of people volunteer. In general, when you look at clinical trials for vaccines, it takes 10 years, right? But that 10 years is a lot of time of like they, uh, the pharma companies are, you know, running the trials themselves, getting enough money to do the trials. And then also the hardest part is getting people to volunteer to get the shot, right? But this, for COVID, everyone knew, saw the pandemic. And so, and a lot of governments gave money to help these companies start these trials, Mm -hmm. as well as we had thousands and thousands of people who were willing to take it to see if it worked. And so all that data happened in such a short amount of time because we had the funding and we had the people who were willing to do it. And I think that's one thing that people kind of don't hear about a lot and misunderstand about the quickness. Nothing in the protocol changed. They had to follow the rules like everyone else does. It's just that they had so much extra funding and so much extra volunteers to help get the data they needed to, you know, hey, this is safe and hey, it does work. Yeah. And I think that 
that idea of like untrustworthiness. And then you have, like you guys were speaking about earlier, the public health officials are saying, hey, get this vaccine. But then everyone's reading different things and they're saying, oh, this is untrust. Like the vaccine's untrustworthy. So now that this public health, you know, officials, now they're untrustworthy. Right. And, you know, even beyond that, you know, we're already a divided nation. And I think that's just like, some people forget, you know, money does solve a lot of problems. And so if we are able to, and when we're able to fund things, we're able to, science needs that funding, we can accomplish great things. I mean, look how far we've come in 100 years. You know, you go back 100 years, we didn't have vaccinations, you know, like, right. this is amazing. And no, this is, this is a great, great point you've br- you bring up, uh, Ryan. And Professor, in addition to, to Ryan's point, I want you to consider that calls are mounting for the FDA to grant full approval to Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccines. Do you think that would help convince more people to get the shot? I think that would help enormously if they if they were given full approval because there's some people who still say, well, it's only an experimental. I can't require my employees or my students or my teachers to get this vaccine because of the experimental, the legal um, status of the vaccine. And in fact, Ryan is exactly right. What makes things take a long time to test and prove is it was accrual. How many patients will volunteer to be part of a clinical trial? And in this case, people volunteered in enormous numbers. That's what made it go so fast. The other thing to remember is the FDA and others have been looking at this technology, not for COVID, but for other things, this messenger RNA technology for 10 years. This was thought about and figured out at least a decade ago. It's been in the labs and in phase um, in early animal studies, the early animal studies, which have to be done first. All of that work had already happened. So when COVID hit, they were able to rapidly put in this the sequencing um, for the particular vaccine, but that, but the the chassis, as it were, for the for the um, idea, the, the the structure of the idea had long been um, getting it into place, getting ready to be used. They were going to use it for other things, but here we get a chance to use it for COVID. And it would be wonderful if all clinical trials could accrue this many volunteers as quickly as the COVID trial did. Unfortunately, it took this tragedy for this many people to to volunteer, to be spurred on to volunteer. That is Lori Zoloff. She's with the University of Chicago. Professor Zoloff, thank you so much for breaking that down. Okay, thank you. And that's today's Reset. As much as we want to put this pandemic behind us, it's still going on, and there's still so much we don't know. Reset has been your best resource over the last 16 months, and we'll continue to bring you the most up-to-date information from scientists, doctors, and others. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.